This episode is brought to you by Certified Piedmontese Beef. Listen up, foodies. Make your next meal even better with real Nebraska beef. They have healthy, tender, delicious Italian heritage beef, grass-fed and sustainably raised on lush pastures in the Midwest. You can even create your own personally curated meat box that's shipped right to your door. To get two free steaks with any purchase over $50, use the code FREEBEEF at checkout. Learn more and shop exclusively at cpbeef.com. This episode is brought to you by FX's The Bear. The hit series returns with Jeremy Allen White in the Golden Globe-winning role of Carmi. He and the team will transform their family sandwich shop into a next-level spot, all while being forced to come together in new ways as they confront their past and reckon with who they want to be in the future. FX is the bear. All episodes now streaming only on Hulu. Hello and welcome to One for the Road with me, Sobe Dave. I'm going to be talking to some incredible guests over the next few weeks, all of whom have made the decision to look at their relationship with alcohol and take steps towards a positive change. My guests are all at different points in their journey, but all have powerful and uplifting stories to share. And that's why I hope you find each episode a valuable source of inspiration and insight. My sponsors for season three of One for the Road are the amazing Rock Sober, a brand established in 2017 and led by brothers Sean and Lee, who are both in recovery and on a shared mission to inspire and support recovering addicts worldwide. Injecting rock and roll into sobriety, Rock Sober offers merchandise and accessories to inspire and empower its community of sober badasses. The boys have recently launched a new range of alcohol-free beers which are taking the market by storm. Every beer purchased will help Rock Sober on their mission to support and inspire more people in recovery. Their message is clear, you don't need alcohol to have a good time. So let's all rock sober and remember the good times with Rock Sober AF Drinks. My guest today on One for the Road is an award-winning writer and author of The Unexpected Joy of Being Sober and her new book, Sunshine Warm Sober. Please welcome the fantastic Catherine Gray. So, Catherine, it is my absolute pleasure to have you on my show today, One for the Road. I feel truly honoured that you've uh, joined me today. How are you? I'm really good. And I've got to say, I love the title of your show. That is brilliant. And um, um, so I think I used that phrase so many times when I was justifying having one more drink. It was more like five more drinks. Yeah, so, I know. Yeah, that's genius. And the twist of it as well, that a lot of people that listen to podcasts are either running or they're sitting in their car in traffic and, you know, so there's a good twist there. Yes, I like that. (laughs) So um, when I was thinking about stopping drinking, uh, I actually went into um, a really well-known bookshop and it was almost like one of those things where I was going to ask for a friend. 
you know, mm-hmm. the assistant was there. I was going to say, oh, my friend wants to give up drinking. And uh, have you got any books on that? You know, because of the <laughs> shame of it. And um, the one that he uh, took me to straight away was your book. And I picked it up and um, I actually did buy it. Uh, and it is literally like the Bible of sobriety because everyone knows your book and it's absolutely brilliant um, oh, thank you but what I love about it is that you're so honest and that's what I try to be on my Instagram and when I do talks and that because I think being authentic about how drink affected your life and how how even being sober now isn't all bells and whistles is so important yeah I agree yeah but what I loved about it is um, hearing about your drinking days because it was quite manic and it did remind me a lot of uh, my days and I know that if we knew each other back in the day we would be absolute tyrants oh we'd be um, dead <laughs> well, well yeah <laughs> joking aside we probably would be because we would be those uh bump into each other in the high street and oh should we have a quick one and then 12 yeah. hours later <laughs> yeah we'd be in a Going. kebab shop <laughs> Yeah, 8 a.m. when yeah. we go to work at nine. Yeah. Oh god, I've done that before, honestly. So I would really, really love it. I mean, some people have heard it, but I'd love it if you could sort of wind back and tell me um a bit about your drinking days, if that's okay. Yeah, sure. So so obviously people who've read the Unexpected Joy of Being Sober will recognize this story, but the book opens with probably my most shocking story, which was that I once woke up um in Brixton police station in a cell having been arrested for being drunk and disorderly um and it was one of those moments where you wake up and you're like I don't know where I am and that happened to me dozens of times if not hundreds of times but this time I was locked in a room (laughs) under arrest and um I when I left they didn't let me leave until I think it was 8 30 or 9 something like that and it was a work day it was a Friday and I had to be at work and worst of all I'd been out with workmates at a free drinks party the night before so they all know I'd been clattered um and so I couldn't be late for work and they wouldn't release me until you know half an hour before I was meant to get my train uh because they said they had assessed me the night before and determined that I wouldn't be sober enough to leave until that time. And the worst thing it was when they handed back, they said, oh, we're just going to go and get your belongings. And they went and got this plastic evidence bag. And I was like, oh, you know, that's just my purse or something. It will, you know, they'll bring my bag in a minute, my actual bag. And the only thing I've had on my person was this tiny pink glittery hairbrush a child's hairbrush that I'd never seen before that I literally must have picked up off the floor because it was really dirty and been like oh I'm just gonna brush my hair and that was it I didn't have keys purse nothing like phone absolutely nothing and you would have thought that would be a rock bottom but and it was but I did continue to drink for another six years and all that episode inspired, really, because I was 27 at the time, was this a series of failed moderation attempts, which lasted for years, where I was like, oh, that didn't work, you know, or it worked for a while, and then it didn't work. And so I'll try something different, like, like, the, like that everyone goes through, drink swapping, going to the gym before the pub, you know, eating before you drink, all of those things that are frequently listed in how to moderate tips. And it always slalomed out of my control. So age 33, I finally, finally arrived at the decision because I was seriously researching suicide. 
that I needed some help and I reached out and then after five months of slippiness and stopping and starting and stopping and starting which again is really really normal I finally quit and that was almost eight years ago now so I'm in my eighth year sober and I'll have completed that next week oh that's amazing (laughs) honestly and how life has changed for you honestly just imagine um how things would be if you hadn't have stopped drinking it not just in your career but in your health as well yeah I really think I mean I don't think I'd be dead by now unless I'd met you obviously but (laughs) (laughs) yeah I think I think I'd be seriously you know struggling probably have some sort of unseen health condition that I didn't know about you know still drinking um, seven or eight I'd probably have progressed to nine or ten bottles of wine a week by now and I just have no money because I, I used to spend it all my spare money on alcohol and cigarettes and you know entry to clubs and taxis and fried chicken and I don't think I'd have any friends or family to speak of I think I'd just have drinking buddies who would have got more and more questionable <laughs> let's say that and I just think I'd be miserable so I'm so glad I, I took that decision did you, in 2013. Uh, was it all social drinking or, or was you drinking at home alone? No, it definitely wasn't. So, And I think that's something that's an important shift for a lot of people. And actually a lot of people will have discovered over lockdown that they're not necessarily yeah. social drinkers. They're, they're more, I think most people are anxious drinkers. And when you don't socialise like over lockdown, you still need to medicate that anxiety. So you still find yourself drinking as much if not more which is what most people's experience was we know from the figures but anyway I lost my thread there oh yeah so uh, yeah I was definitely a social drinker until probably the age of around 28 29 when I started having the odd drink at home and finding that I would buy one of those miniature you know those airplane sized bottles of wine and be like I'm just gonna drink this (laughs) and then I would go back to the off license and get more so I would always end up drinking I mean sometimes I'd go back to the off license twice so my intentions and what I actually drank never matched up and I was finding that even when I was at home alone from the ages of, of like 30 to 33 I was drinking a bottle of wine a bottle and a half of wine after I had a bottle and a half I, I you know was really really drunk so I tended to stop there but yeah it wasn't it didn't matter who I was with or what the circumstances were whether I was sad or happy once I started drinking I drank to that excess so yeah it was a no-brainer really me quitting yeah I think um there's a massive massive slippery slope from going from that one bottle to two because back in the day when I was drinking, I started drinking indoors. I remember leaving the pub and I was absolutely hammered and the off license was shut. So I said to the landlord, can you give me any takeouts? And he had these like kegs and he filled it up. It's a four pint keg of cider and it was a Sunday night and I'd worked the next morning and I'd already been in the pub all day. And it's <laughs> like, for me, nothing was ever enough, you know, and I've bowled out of the pub, all sort of proud and that. And I swang this keg up in the air and let, like, let go of it. And it was like, you know, in slow motion when it's like, (laughs) and I watched this keg spin round in the air and I couldn't catch it and it smashed all over the road. And I was literally devastated. I bet. I was hammered anyway. (laughs) 
it's like I was greedy, you know. Yeah. I was so greedy, and it's like, oh well, I can go home and have a nightcap now. Four pints of cider after being in a pub all day is not a nightcap, is it? <laughs> I mean, I use the nightcap thing so many times, as well as the one for the road thing, where I was like, oh, you know, this is normal. I'm just getting a nightcap. It's very civilized, mm. a bit like 50s screen icon. I'm just get going to the off license to get a nightcap, but no, it's it's not a nightcap when you've already had a skinful. No, it's, it's a slippery just... slope, isn't it? And um, you know all the fake beliefs around alcohol that it, you know, I've had a good day, bad day, average day, nothing's going on. I need a drink to sleep. I need a drink to unwind. My anxiety's up. I need a drink, you know. And it's all these false beliefs that we kid ourselves with, isn't it? And when you start drinking at home. It is it, such a slippery slope because then you become isolated, don't you? And uh, for me, mine went from wine to vodka because I was getting fat, basically. So mm. I, I wasn't worried about the internal damage it was doing. It's more the external looking in the mirror and thinking you've eaten a lot of pies, boy. But actually it was I've drank too much wine. Yeah, so I, I got onto vodka relate to that it, more. Yeah, I got onto vodka and then... What you say about going to the office, I would buy half a bottle thinking I'm moderating. <laughs> and then I'd buy a bottle, but in a different office because I didn't want him to judge me. Yeah, uh, I, I did that to too. Yeah, go to different supermarkets each night. So I'm not, someone like might see me in the queue with my cabbage and, and that's it. That's my healthy <laughs> option for the night, you know. Yeah, I, I totally relate to that. And I remember being very, very concerned as to what the server and the off-license made of me, like whether they were judging me. Mm. And of course, I'm sure they didn't care. But I I frequently, I had about five off-licenses that I would circulate. And I would even, if it was after, um, when I lived in Tooting, there was like a bit of a dearth of off-licenses in the area that I lived in. And so if I wanted a drink after midnight, and this was before kind of booze delivery services. I'm really glad that they weren't yeah, invented then because I would have just rinsed it. Yeah. But I used to walk, you know, a, a female, alone, not that gender matters, but alone at night through dark streets for mm. a mile and a half to go to the 24-hour license to buy booze. And that was on a school night as well, often. It's just extraordinary the lengths that you go to to get more. And it's, but when you said about smashing that keg, I felt it. Even, yeah. even though I don't have any, you know, a desire for alcohol now, but on a conscious level, it must live there somewhere in, in my subconscious, like buried, because I flinched when you said that. Yeah, you felt it. And, but then, you know, I went on to um, solitary drinking for years and years and years. And, you know, I ended up drinking most nights a litre of vodka. Yeah. Right? So What's I'm that in units? You. I'm, I don't yeah. know about vodka. I don't even, like I don't even want to know about units on that because it scares <laughs> me. But how do you go from – people always say, how do you go from that to, to not drinking? And uh, I've talked to William Porter about this, that why I didn't go through withdrawals or I needed rehab because I was like – as a litre of vodka a night is literally terrible, isn't it? Um, mm, that's and, quite a lot. Yeah. And I, when I stopped, I didn't have withdrawal symptoms at all. I was obviously I had the shakes and that, but I just cracked on with it. 
I think if if I was uh, maybe less active in my work, um, I'm a big guy. That's how he's explained it to me. You know, like I had an active job, so it's almost like I worked off my hangover every morning. So my body became resilient to the alcohol yeah. withdrawal. Do you know what I mean? But it's yeah. like when we talk about your drinking, my drinking. Anyone listening to this now would think, God, how the hell did you stop? So when you decided enough was enough, what did you do? Oh, well, I mean, so many things. I went from the first instance when I first reached out to help. I reached out to my dad. He was the first person I called because he was, you know, 20 years sober. And he, he literally flew over from Ireland and took me to an AA meeting the next day. And so I went to AA for six months and I have a lot of time for AA. I think it does brilliant, brilliant things, um, but it's not for everyone. And it wasn't for me. Mm. Um, so it was actually once I started exploring other avenues and other um, ways into sobriety and stopped going to AA that I found my day one, but I wouldn't necessarily, you know, that that's not. Uh, necessarily the route for everyone millions of people get sober in AA so I want to be clear about that but it was once I really committed to it on a personal level and just immersed myself in everything I could find all the quit that I could find all the podcasts um, I just became obsessed with it almost well yeah as obsessed as I had been with drinking I took all that energy and started redirecting it towards not drinking and that was the key for me it was almost like studying for a degree and it worked and I just I, I read everything found everything and tried pretty much everything I could think of you know even things like EFT tapping and mm. things like that and just kept what worked and didn't keep what didn't you know I think it's as I, simple as that yeah I think education is key you know and um, I quite often share information on my Instagram about you know that it's not just the some people just think it's the liver it affects when you drink I remember being on holiday years ago and I had a real pain in my back and I said to the guy that we've met on holiday if I die can you make sure all my affairs are looked after and it was almost <laughs> like I don't even know this bloke and I've got a pain in my back and I think it's my liver packing up do you know what I mean oh, um, but it's when you really look into it and the damage alcohol does everywhere else you know your arteries your mental health it can give you cancer and it's all those things and when you really find out I think it helps to bolster your sobriety because you I don't know I don't know if you're the same but I look at a bottle of booze now and I feel physically sick when I look at it yeah I do too and I had a games night here or at the weekend and funnily enough and this is not by design it's just by happy accident that um I've met loads of sober people down here in Brighton just you know one I met through yoga two I met through my co-working space and we just seem to gravitate towards each other even though we didn't meet in any kind of sober setting so five of the six of us weren't drinking and one person was drinking and he's one of these mysterious drinkers that has like one bottle of beer over three hours I'm like what are you doing yeah <laughs> it's not how you drink um but when I when he left his um empty bottle obviously um and when I washed it out it just makes me feel sick yeah, I, I it, the smell of it really grosses me out yeah. And um, I want, because occasionally I'll drink kombucha, but I make sure now it's like the shop type that doesn't say may contain alcohol, because that means that they've 
distilled the alcohol out and mm. um, made sure it's on, under 1% or something like that, which is about the same as a banana. But anyway, I, I once had homebrew kombucha. And this was about a year ago. Sorry, if you can hear gnawing, it's not me, it's my dog. Oh, yeah, you've got a puppy, <laughs> haven't you? Yeah, yeah. He's, uh, he's, only six. he's like insisting on lying right on top of me and gnawing this horn but anyway yeah and they kept topping up my homebrew kombucha and I didn't know at the time that actually kombucha could be sort of over two percent if it's homebrew and it's not treated in the right way and I felt I probably only had the equivalent of maybe one and a half units over the course of an entire evening but I felt quite giddy and weird when I stood up and walked home and I was like I really hate this feeling yeah I really dislike this feeling and that also happened when I was, I think, three years sober, somebody in a very loud club. I was at a comedy night. I said, can I have a tonic? They served me a vodka tonic. And I took a sip, like quite a long sip, and again, hated the feeling. So mm. like you, the smell of it, the thought of it literally turns my stomach. And yet at the same time, when you were talking about smashing that keg, I recalled and was like, oh, no. So I think you can, um, on a conscious level, really be repelled by alcohol, but it does live on. I mean, we know that the neural pathways, when you've been, been addicted to something, which I definitely was, live on in the brain. They're just disused. They're like cobwebbed and overgrown. If you think about it like a path in a wood, it's mm. a path that you can no longer see, but it's still there. So that's it's how like um, relationships, it. isn't it? When you, um, you've had a, a relationship with someone and it finishes... And you you kind of remember the the good bit. I think it's called drinking amnesia, uh, and you remember the good bits of it and and what made you feel good and the the times that you went out on holiday and stuff like that. But um, that's the the memories your brain holds. But when you really sit down and think about it, of all the devastating effects it had in your life and how you felt every morning and how your mental health was really compromised and that it's it sort of brings it back to you doesn't it yeah and I think one, one, you've touched on such an important point because if you don't if you just put down the alcohol which actually a lot of people can do even if they were very heavy drinkers and they can do like a year sober but if you don't attend to that because what what happens if you if you leave it alone and you just leave it unattended your drinkings can slide back yeah. to bathing drinking in this rosy glow and the reason for that is because we are surrounded, like on an average day, I am not even exaggerating when I say I probably, we probably get a hundred pro drinking messages to perhaps, I mean, now there are pro sobriety messages, <laughs> thankfully, especially if you live in like the Instagram sober world that we do, mm. but the, they so outweigh the pro non-drinking messages that if you don't attend to that and unbrainwash yourself by remembering the bad times mm. and also just reading about what it was doing to your body and also noticing all the good things that have come about from your non-drinking, then you'll probably go back because your, your thoughts will slide into that social conditioning that we are all um, encouraged into from the age of... Uh, I would say as early as like four or five, mm. that drinking is a good thing and drinking is fun and drinking is how you socialize and everyone should grow up to be a drinker. So 
it's really important to offset that by doing lots of reading, lots of thinking, lots of writing, talking in meetings, whatever helps you. Yeah, and lo- and lots of acknowledging, I think, as well, because for me, I acknowledge that alcohol, I have to live alongside it in my life rather than I, you know, I'd like to say that I've booted it out of my life forever, which I have, but it's still very much there you know so I live alongside it and uh, I make sure that I don't use negative dialect around it because if I was to say to you say we're having a coffee now and I go hey Catherine god God, I could murder a beer now (laughs) his ears would prick up and go hello I've waited a long time for this but there's my in now and I can get in there and start playing with him here now you know, yeah. it's all that horrible, negative, subliminal chatter that goes on. And the amount of people that have said to me, oh, it's always after as well. Um, oh, Dave, um, I had a couple of glasses of wine last night. But do you know what? I put the rest of the bottle back in the fridge. I, th- I think I've got hold of this now. I think I can moderate. Mm. <laughs> and it's OK, then let's see where this goes. A month later, Dave, I'm in trouble. Back exactly where I was before, you know, because we got to remember the power of the beast, you know, and and when you drink like we do, it's it's got to be a, a zero sort of interaction with it, isn't it? Yeah, well, I, I think it's um, I don't know with the zero interact because it's omnipresent, but I, I really relate to what you're saying and uh, about the beast, and that's basically addictive voice recognition. And my mm. addictive voice is Voldemort. Does yours have a name? Or is he just the beast? I can't really say it on here. <laughs> That's funny. Is it? Is it? Is it a real person? Or is it swearing? Uh, well, no, it's a swear word. So I just oh, just right. own take okay. on it, you know. So I think uh, I can probably guess which one. Yeah. It is. But um, yeah, it kind of lives on your shoulder, and when yeah. you first get sober, it's saying all sorts. I mean, it's like an, a, a domestic violence, basically, in your mm. own head. It's like saying you're boring now who do you think you are? You're not going to be able to quit drinking. You may as well have a drink now because you're going to mm. fail. Um, everyone hates you. Now you don't drink. Uh, it said some really bizarre things to me. It said, you know, you're less fanciable. Now you don't drink. Mm. It said um, you have a cold. You should have a drink because <laughs> a hot toddy will help with that cold. It said you have toothache. You should have some of that vodka because vodka is an anaesthetic. It has tried every which way in to get me to drink again. And you have to squash it. You really do. Because otherwise, if you give it airtime, it will take you to the fridge or the off license or the pub and have its way. Um, And it really, really helps, like you said, to separate it out from yourself and realize that it doesn't want the best for you and also personify it and give it a name even if that's a really swearing name yeah uh and i've had all sorts of brilliant names for it and it just it it means that you can almost detach from it and start arguing with it and Mm. know that that's going to fade and go away once your real self and what you really want which is not to drink comes to the fore absolutely and it is such a journey isn't it it's such you know i use the analogy of cycling a bike up a hill and then you hit a straight and then you go downhill there's there's good times where the sun comes out um and maybe that's um why you called your new book sunshine mom sober eh yeah Um, yeah yeah. but you know it's a journey and you're eight years sober soon and, and and it's um 
you know, you go through phases, don't you? And uh, I remember in the beginning, I had the pink cloud and I was flying and I was getting a lot of attention on Instagram because I was sharing my journey. Then I got the probably the four month slump where I was uh, walking my lovely little dog, Lola, a little beautiful chihuahua. Mm. Um, so I'm a six foot bloke covered in tattoos, walking along Wandsworth Common with a chihuahua. <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I love it when I see people who don't look remotely like yeah. their dog. It's my favourite thing. <laughs> oh. And uh, <laughs> excuse me, I saw the pub in the corner, right? And the sun was out because I gave up in the January. So this was in the spring. And uh, I looked over the pub and I it, it was that voice you've just been talking about. You know, it was like, oh, my God, I could absolutely murder a beer now. And, I, and then this vision popped in my head of me with my sunglasses in the pub garden with the condensation going down the pine and stuff like that. And I really had to check in with myself. Right. So I turned the other way and walked in a different direction. Uh, and I thought that was it, but it wasn't because it really bit me for a few days after that. It, it really mm. tormented me of, oh, my God, is this forever now? Is this this, you know, the, the beginning felt then like a bit of a novelty, you know, like, oh, God, I've given up and I've told everyone I'm not drinking. And now this is the reality of it all. You know, yeah. and I really went through a period of time that I struggled with the demons in my head, you know. Did you have that? I wouldn't describe it as like a marked moment where, you know, it was like I could say it was at 90 days or four months or whatever. But it was definitely in the beginning, it was like a daily occurrence where I would struggle with these thoughts that my drinking wasn't going to be as um, my, you know, my sober life wasn't going to be as good as my drinking life. And what you just said is so interesting because we we often fail to recognize how much sunshine is a trigger <laughs> and what oh, yeah. you just described you know the sunglasses the laughing the condensation running down the glass sounds to me like an alcohol advert yeah right was yeah. that a real memory or was that an advert that you just placed yourself in yeah. you see what I mean yeah um so often our brains will trick us into thinking that something that we've seen in advertising like oh my God, I could go to a beach bonfire and have beer and dance around the bonfire. Like, it never happened to me. When I drank in the summer, it just inevitably ended up being messier because I would start earlier. You know, in the summer, it's quite socially acceptable to start drinking at a picnic or after rounders on the common or, you know, whatever you're doing during the day because people tend to get together at lunchtime rather than later in the day. So my summer drinking just ended up being that much messier. But my brain messed with me and told me that it was going to be beautiful this time. And it was going to look like pavement drinking and people watching and, you know, a cold rosé on a rooftop restaurant. You know, it just it just fired images at me of things that hadn't actually happened ever. (laughs) But my brain was telling me that they would happen this time. Sorry, he's got a squeaky toy now. I'm going to take that off him. Come here. All right. So, yeah, it's it's really, well, it was really important for me to overcome those slumps by borrowing into what is real, what yeah. really happened, and what is advertising that's just worked its way into your head. Yeah, it's true. Um, I quite often talked about the fantasy of drinking, um, 
compared to the reality, which is what you're exactly saying there. And and you're right, because the way I painted that then to the listeners was the condensation running down the glass and the perfect, oh my God, I've got the seat in the corner that the sun's there for at least another four hours so I can get a nice tan and, you know, things like that. But when you break it down, like what you say about the pavement drinking, um, in uh, Battersea, where I live, there's Northcote Road, and they pedestrianise it at the weekends. So you've got oh, all the tables. So much drinking on Northcote Road, I can't even tell you. Well, I'm surprised that we never fell over together, but that's another story. <laughs> Maybe we did, Dave, and you know, just don't did. remember. Yeah, I'm a bit older than you, might have looked. Look at that drunken old goat staggering up the road, probably. But um, yeah, he's he's just dropped his keg. How foolish! Yeah. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna drink with him. <laughs> no, he's crying. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I was down there the other day, right, and, and there was some lads down there at half ten in the morning, all with beers, and there was part of me that was, oh, they're on it all day, oh, my God, you know, and it brought all back. But really, what is the carnage of that? Because I didn't inevitably end up on my own, actually, because they would all go off throughout yeah. the day and do their different things with the family, whatever. But me, that half past ten in the morning spelled out to me, this is it until I absolutely make a fool out of myself or yeah. fall asleep over the want of common and wake up a load of bites on my face or, you know, all, all these different things. And you're really, really right what you say there about how these advertising agencies paint. You know, I was down in the tube station. I've done, there's this picture of, of, I don't know, bloody Campari or something. And and the way they did it was made it look so amazingly, they were on holiday by the pool and stuff yeah. like that. And it's, there's a lot to answer to though, isn't there? I do think there's a reckoning coming for the alcohol industry and how, and the governing around the way they advertise. Because at the minute, the the guidelines, I think they actually set them themselves, you know, or maybe I've made that up. Maybe that's um, not true. But the, the guidelines are really loose. And also when you think about it, so alcohol causes 21 deaths a day, I think was the latest count of figures. And last year we saw the highest death rate in, um, in recorded history because mm. of people drinking in lockdown. Why is alcohol being advertised at all? Like, that doesn't make any sense to me. When you think about the damage that it does to society, and as we know, Professor David Nutt, uh, basically, or I'm not going to say this because it's legal, but you know, it, reportedly he thinks he got fired by the government yeah. because he said that alcohol was the most damaging drug above yeah. crystal meth and cocaine. Yeah. So when you, when you really think about those two facts, it's, it does seem very, very odd that we're still looking at alcohol advertising because obviously kids see that. And especially watch football. And even though they've now switched to advertising 0%, you're still looking at a beer brand. The kid is still being advertised that beer, even though it's a 0% beer. And I think the reason they did that with the Euros was because they know that they're going to be stopped from sponsoring sports, as they have in so many other countries. And this is their ready-made defence, that they're like, but it's 0%. And when that, um, I can't remember what he's called because I don't care about football. <laughs> when that um, goalkeeper took the beer bottle off the table, all the beer bottles off the table, and everyone was like, oh, but come on, dude, you know, it's 0%. But it's still a beer brand. So he's yeah. still, by sitting with those, I'm not going to mention the name, but with those bottles on the table, he is still endorsing that beer brand, even though it's 0%. And just to be clear, I have, nothing no beef with zero percent beer 
But I do think that the alcohol industry needs to be held to account now and needs to be stopped from depicting these glamorous scenes because they get into people's heads and they're getting into our kids' heads mm. is the scariest thing because they got into my head and yours. Yeah. <laughs> where's subliminal advertising, isn't it? In the old days, and they were banned where they would, I think it was before your time actually, and, and mine in a way, but my I think I was only like, eight or nine and my dad explained it about where things would flash on the screen and flash off again and you could barely see them but say it was Weetabix and then yeah now later you you fancy in Weetabix you know advertising puts these things in your head constantly wherever you look birthday cards Christmas cards you know do you know what talking about Northcote Road um I walked down there uh just before lockdown and uh, outside the I won't name the pub, but it was quite a well-known pub down in Northcote Road. And there was a blackboard out there and it said, um, he'd, the manager had handwritten, Monday morning blues, cure it with booze. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. I mean, I've seen so many of those clapboards and some of them are really quite funny, but then you think about the messaging behind it and it is so dark. Yeah. And they enable people to go into the pub and have a drink, even if it is Monday lunchtime, you know, or Monday at 11 a.m. It's dark. When you think about it, it's really dark. And it's almost like we're living in a Black Mirror episode and not people haven't woken up yet. The fact that if it was if you replaced it with any other substance, you know, cocaine, cigarettes even, then you would see how weird that is and wrong yeah. that is. And yet as yeah. a nation, we're we're still all plugged into this matrix where it's okay. I mean, it's like in a way, uh, you saying about the cigarettes and that, um, like sugar. Yeah. Imagine a blackboard and it says, struggling with diabetes, have a Krispy Kreme donut or something. You know, <laughs> yeah. The messaging is just ridiculous, you know. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense because, you know, the, like you just said, alcohol is a depressant. So yeah. <laughs> literally the worst thing you can take for blues is booze. It oh, will... that's a saying in itself. <laughs> That's my next Instagram post. Thank you so much. I was struggling today. Well, I've now got evidence I said it. Ah. So <laughs> okay. I'm going to put a TM on that. <laughs> so we all know as well then. So like you, you, you get through the first year and um, I always sort of try and make people aware that landmarks are quite tricky times at times. I remember when I was a year sober and it was like my sort of analogy there is when, when um, you're, pregnant or your well your partner I'm not pregnant but and the, <laughs> and the build up to that is euphoria and excitement and it's oh what you're gonna call the baby's name and you're going to mother can getting all the stuff and whatever and then when the baby's born and everyone stops texting calling and you're left with a baby crying at night it's it's quite difficult isn't it and I remember just after my year anniversary I was like what now then you know, yeah. what, what comes now? And, and it was another slump in, in yeah. my sobriety, you know, and um, I ripped my Achilles tendon playing football and I was basically couldn't go anywhere. And uh, that was just before lockdown as well. And I, I think it's important and that's going to nicely lead on to your book in a minute is is to sort of look at the bigger picture in your sobriety. You know, the first year or, or so is where you put in the groundwork to change your habits and your routines, deal with the cravings and triggers and tell your friends, they get used to you not drinking maybe if they don't, you can bugger them off out of it. 
But how was it after you? Because I think you wrote your book. Was that right? You were three or four years sober when you wrote your book. Yeah. So when I wrote um, and it said you're being sober, I was two and three years sober and then it tipped in. So I think I was four years sober when it actually published. So the new book is about, you know, the last four years that I haven't written about. It's kind of like a sequel. Uh, but it's it's exactly about what you've just described. You know, it, the first few years feel like a novelty for me. Well, for me, they did as well. And you get all these unbelievable congratulations and people mm. buy you cakes and get, you know, cards. And if you're lucky and you have people around you that support your sobriety, <clears throat> which I did. And then people start forgetting and it's just, you know, it's just part of who you are. In a way, that's a good thing because they stop going, oh, when are you going to stop this not drinking thing? But in another way, it's like, you're like, uh, excuse me, uh, <laughs> I just turned six years sober. Where's my parade? Like, where is it? Yeah, <laughs> I, deserve, I deserve a freaking parade. Yeah. And um, you don't get it. So you have to kind of give yourself a parade and surround yourself with people that do get it and will remember your soberversary. And... Because, I mean, none, none of my, apart from one who's a truly excellent person, but none of my drinking friends remember my cyberversary. They won't get in contact next week. They just don't think it's that important. Yeah. Whereas all of my sober friends know and mostly will send some sort of congratulations. So it's really important to find the people who understand how big a deal that is and will congratulate you and um, give you the plaudits that you deserve. Community is so key, isn't it? I mean, yeah. I, I did try AA as well, and I went there. And when I walked in, I think I was more blown away by the church. It was just beautiful. Uh, oh. And I settled in, and I sat, sat at the back, and I listened to people talking. And, I, you know, it was the first time, actually, I thought, I'm not alone with this. But maybe a bit like yourself – it didn't quite work for me after four or five. It didn't, there was something about it that wasn't connecting with me. I mean, I, I encourage everyone to, to go to meetings and to go to at least, you know, several, if not, I mean, I went to over 60, I think maybe yeah. over 70 before deciding it wasn't for me. But then again, I was under quite a lot of pressure from my family to go in terms of my dad because obviously that had been the way for him so he was like this will be the way for you and so it I really was scared to leave because I thought it was the only way but then I found all these corners of the internet where people were talking about other ways and I knew that it was the right decision for me to step away but I know lots and lots of people who've gotten beautiful sobriety out of it so who tried lots of other things that didn't work and then AA was the click for them so it just depends on you. And I would actually go again anyway. Like if, if someone wanted to go to an AA meeting, I, I would actually think I would really enjoy to go along just to hear other people talk about their journeys and stuff like that. You know, it's I'm certainly not anti that. I think we've got to find our lane and, and whatever um, suits you is the way to go. And for me, it was the community you know, the yeah. community of the sober people on Instagram. And I started talking at the Mindful Drinking Festival and, and different bits and pieces. And um, that keeps me going, really. So, yeah. And also, I learned some of the, my most indispensable lessons at AA. And even though it was when I left that my day one stuck, 
I don't know how much the six months before that prepped me for that. It might be that it gave me a really good like basis to jump off from. They say that AA is meant to be like a bridge back to normal living, but a lot of people sometimes get stuck on the bridge. Mm. And I think that's very true. I think you're allowed to um, graduate. You know, you can move on to other methods if you if you feel that that's no longer serving you. And you shouldn't feel any fear around that, around, you know, trying different sorts of meetings or mm. um, not going anymore and doing other things instead. I think it's just important that you supplant that with something else. It's interesting because I, I, I always find the word recovery difficult for me. And I don't know why, but that's why I sort of look at my sobriety as discovery because it feels more in the moment. And it, <laughs> you're kidding it, me. That's what I put in the book. But maybe it? I took maybe I took that from you. Well, obviously, Sub- I'm going to tell Subconsciously. <laughs> I mean, really. Because <laughs> you haven't read the new book, have you? But that is literally oh, well, one, of those, one of the last. <laughs> <laughs> it's so funny how you um how you pick up things and you don't even realize you have and you're like oh I've come up with that that's good yeah and, we need and- to talk <laughs> <laughs> I'll tell you what you can have the blues and booze line <laughs> yeah let's do it yeah yeah but yeah it I I don't have a problem with the word recovery it did feel like recovery in the beginning but Mm. uh, yeah I know what you mean then it did flip when I no longer felt like uh, there was anything necessary to recover from and it became more about curiosity and discovery so yeah I feel really similarly and I think your uh how your long-term if you're if you're shooting for long-term sobriety how it's going to feel it's very important that you choose where you put it in the beginning because how it will feel in the long term depends on how you approach it in the beginning if you approach it as deprivation and denial and i'm going to crave this forever then it will feel like that because you expect it to feel like that whereas if you tell yourself okay i'm going to clock all the positives that i'm getting from not drinking that anymore and eventually i will no longer crave this because why would you, I mean, we don't quit smoking and think I'm going to crave this forever. I'm a smokeaholic till I die. Yeah. And yet with, and we don't really think of any other substance or addictive behavior that way. And yet with alcohol, we do. And I, I question that because it hasn't felt like that for me. And I don't think it has for you either. And I know lots of other people who haven't felt that way either. Mm. So yeah, I think it's, but I think a lot of that is perception. I, I think it is, and it's the, the conversation you have around it, you know, like it's, um, I sort of got this thing, it's what you gain and not what you lose, because it's it's quite uh, easy to go, oh, well, God, I've lost this. How am I meant to go on holiday and not drink? It's my birthday coming up and stuff like that. And it and it's like that kind of talk will hold you back from achieving yeah. in the first place. You know, I always suggest to people try 30 days and then journal how you feel in those 30 days. And at the end of it, it's up to you what you want to do with it, you know. Mm. But hopefully you will notice differences that be enough for you to carry on. And that's what happened with my dry Jan campaign I did. And there's people now that are nine months sober, just with the um, thing of starting for 30 days. And you can surprise yourself sometimes. Yeah. And the only way to find out how alcohol is negatively affecting your life and how sobriety feels is to try it. (laughs) Literally. That's the only way you can find out. 
And there's all sorts of surprising discoveries on the other side of that. I had so many health ailments that I had no idea were related to alcohol, like dandruff, like cystic acne, like that tire around my middle, which, you know, may or may not have come back now I'm over 40. (laughs) But, um, you know, like lack of energy, like waking up in the middle of the night and not being able to get back to sleep. Mm. All of those things that I had no idea could be traced back to alcohol that went away when I quit. And the only way to find that out is to do it. And I would encourage even going beyond 30 days. I would I would say like for me, three months. Yeah. As you know, I run Sober Spring. I, I, yeah. That's why I pitched that to Alcohol Change UK because I really think that three months is a good taster because it gives you a chance to kind of settle into it and start to really feel those benefits. And over half of people who do Sober Spring don't go back to drinking. Yeah. So it works. And it, it means also because when you do dry January, I love dry January, just to be clear, but <laughs> it's quite easy to hide away for all of dry January and be like, I'm not going out, I'm not going out. I can't see anyone. Yeah. I'm not drinking. And also just feel miserable and deprived and, um, you know, approach it in that way, which is not the campaign is not intended like that. And then, you know, roll away into a wet February. But if you do a slightly longer period, like three months, then you're kind of forced to socialize sober because you can't hide for three months, right? You have to do some stuff. There's going to be some engagement parties or, you know, family parties that you have to go to. Mm. So you are kind of forced into that situation where you learn how to socialize sober and you start to realize, huh, I can do this maybe longer term. And it gives you that empowered feeling that you can go further. I love that, and I know I know you did um, sober spring because I, me and my wife wrote for that, didn't we? And uh, oh yeah, of course. I love Alcohol Change UK, and I'm I'm so honoured that I'm now an ambassador for them, and um, we're running a campaign, as you know, about the sober shaming. And I bet I pretty much guarantee you've done it right because I have. Oh, 100 percent. I was yeah. the the show sober shamer. I was so mean to sober people. Yeah. I was like, why are you even here if yeah, you're not drinking? Drink. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God, look at that sober person trying to dance. It's like a giraffe trying to ice skate. <laughs> I said that as well. How mean is that? And oh, they, you're they, bad. I I was horrible. Oh, uh, but it was be- it was because I felt very uncomfortable with them not drinking. Yeah. And there wasn't they were really fun in the pub and they were really yeah. good at dancing. But I had to put them down in order to feel okay about my drinking because I felt that I couldn't be in the pub and be any fun without alcohol. I felt that I couldn't dance sober, that me dancing sober would be like a giraffe on ice skates. So I projected it onto them. And it was nothing to do with them. I know that now. So when somebody, actually, I was at a party a couple of weeks ago and two people, I literally said, oh, hi, I'm Catherine. And two people said to me, uh, oh, is that non-alcoholic? And I was like, literally, we haven't even had any small talk. I don't even know who you are. All I know is your yeah. name. And yeah. we're, I'm already being interrogated about what's in my glass. And it hadn't happened for so long that I, w- I just laughed out loud <laughs> in both occasions. Because I was just like, I'd actually forgotten that this existed. Mm. this you know these these people who the most important thing to them is what's in your glass because I used to be like that and I used to interrogate non-drinkers as to why they weren't drinking and it's so rude 
and there's just no need for it but people still do it to this day although it hadn't happened to me for so long that I really think things are changing I honestly I think it's been about three years since that happened since two people at a party asked me for my reasons for not drinking which is a good sign yeah it's definitely changing and this campaign's really brilliant and um I've got one of their t-shirts actually alcohol change UK t-shirt and I quite often wear it out <laughs> I love I that. do parading past that With pub where if there's Monday morning blues cure booze I just walk up and down outside in my pants in my sober <laughs> day pants and my alcohol change <laughs> thing but I'm going to get it written on um, Stop Sober Shaming uh, on that because I, I think it's a real message. And the other thing is about the stigma, right? Because um, I was talking about, um, I had a guest, Sarah Drage, on my podcast as well. And unfortunately, her dad, Steve, died um, in 2017 and he was around my age. And we've sort of collaborated now and we're doing a lot of talks online, but we're going to a college next month as well. And we're talking in front of a load of students and uh, potential documentary coming up and stuff all around the stigma because she believes that's how her dad died because of the shame he felt about his drinking and stuff. And I was with Alcohol Change at King's Cross Station before lockdown, helping them raise some money, right? Uh, I didn't see you there, Catherine. But anyway, um, and I was, <laughs> I we're not even allowed to it. shake a bucket, you know. But yeah. I, I was there with my badge on, um, with Alcohol Change, and I think in about three hours, I got about 25p. Wow. And people looked at me like I was a complete down and out, begging for money and stuff like that. And it really opened my eyes to the stigma of what alcoholism looks like to people, you know. And and I came away from there feeling really down, actually, thinking this is a good thing that I'm doing here or we're doing as the organisation, you know. And it really shocked me, the reaction I got from the public. Yeah. What was so? What was this? Uh, what was the bucket saying? Is it stop sober shaming? No, no, or no. It wasn't as sober shaming. It was um, just raising money for alcohol awareness. It was, I think, yeah. it was alcohol awareness week, which this year's in November, isn't it? So it was just raising money for Alcohol Change UK. You know, so uh, that was the theme. I think it was during Alcohol Awareness Week, and um, people just looked at me. I think one person put two p in there and stuff like that. But it was just the, the image that. I suppose I portrayed to them of it was to do with alcohol and what does that mean to people I don't know I don't know whether that's a representative reaction though of how society feels about alcohol change because I think that might have been more to do with them just not wanting to give you any money Dave (laughs) was it just me then I just actually did look (laughs) like a down and out didn't I just you were you there with with your chihuahua yeah, I mean, um, a broken keg of cider remnants that I've kept to this day, maybe. Well, maybe they've just all come across you on the North Coat Road. And like, I'm not going anywhere near that guy. He's a lunatic. <laughs> yeah, he used to drink with that old lush Catherine Gray back in the day. And, yeah, I've seen yeah, them yeah. rolling around stay the away, North Coat. Stay away. <laughs> yeah, I think it's probably, you know, I don't, I, I think that, uh, you can tell by what's being covered in the press. I mean, I wrote a piece for The Guardian, I think it was last year, and it got shared something crazy like 20,000 times. And so, and it was about sobriety and positive, you know, positive about sobriety and alcohol change. And so I think when you look at that behavior, like the fact that 
sober positive messaging has become so mainstream now and I've written a couple of pieces for broadsheets recently and I'm writing another one tomorrow all with the same sort of messaging that they, they don't the the press doesn't create that if there's not a demand for it mm. so I think probably what you experienced was an anomaly and not necessarily a a representative signal of how society feels about that but I'm Let's sorry you had that quick. experience it was actually me. <laughs> and I've never been asked since. So, I mean, it, you know. They're like, don't invite Dave back. Yeah, they say actually. <laughs> invite um, Kath can, next time. <laughs> yeah. Can you be an ambassador, but please do not go out in public because your yeah. um, persona doesn't represent what we're all about, really. But Yeah, exactly. Oh, yeah. that's funny. So, look, let's uh, start to wind this up. I really love to talk about your new book and if you could tell everyone what this is about then that'd be fabulous yeah sure um so it's called sunshine warm sober it's a riposte to the whole stone cold sober propaganda and it's about years um four to eight of sobriety so it's about what happens after the non-drinking almost becomes automatic but you Mm. have to do a lot of the deeper work so i guess it's it's a it's really intended for readers who are already in sobriety and going into long-term sobriety but also if you're a bit of a you like an advanced snapshot into what it might feel like Mm. to be long-term sober then and you like to you know read read above your reading age kind of thing um then it would it would be a good read but it's it's very similar in tone to unexpected joy being sober there's loads of diary entries in there of my life drinking versus my life sober all the stories that I didn't have room for in the Mm. first book um lots of experts disseminating really big burning questions like is addiction a disease is it genetic once an addict always an addict is there any such thing as an addictive personality because I wanted to know the answers to those things and so I asked four big experts each of those questions and their answers were really interesting and it also just digs into a lot of the stuff that I discovered that I needed to do Um, I mean say for instance when I was six years sober I realized that I had zero boundaries and something dramatic happened where somebody I love crossed a big boundary and um did something that I'd asked them not to and then just expected me to automatically forgive them and I was like whoa you Mm. know why did that happen why did that person feel like they could do that and it was because I I was just such a people pleaser I would I would I'd almost gone too far the other way after being an utter delinquent and you know demanding harridan in my drinking days I'd almost gone too far the other way where I was like you know please forgive me I'll do anything you want you can treat me as as you please and I didn't have any boundaries around myself and some people were taking advantage of that so I had to learn how to do that I had to learn to ask for what I needed in relationships which I'd never done before I need you to contact me at least once a day for instance when I first started dating someone Uh, I didn't know how to do that because I didn't really I hadn't really tapped into what I needed So that was really interesting. But yeah, just all of that stuff. And also it digs into the all the corruption that's going on with the alcohol industry. Like the fact that drink aware, we look at a bottle of alcohol and it says go to drink aware for the fact. And drink aware is literally funded 
by the alcohol industry. I mean, yeah, I've heard that, and that's a whole new conversation, isn't it? It's just yeah, it's so weird that that's allowed to happen. Yeah, I know, I know, it's it's a disgrace, really. But you know, we could carry on for another hour, I'm sure, because it's a lovely, lovely chat I've had with you. Even though I've worked out that you've pinched my discovery, <laughs> or, or have you pinched mine, Dave? Because I did put it on Instagram. When? <laughs> Oh, I, I can't remember. No. Like oh, months ago. There you go. <laughs> we'll, we'll have to share screenshots of whoever said it first. We'll <laughs> um, <laughs> get our lawyers on it, yeah? Yeah, but I, honestly, <laughs> it's been a real, real fabulous job. I was going to say joy, but then that ties in with your book as well. But we can say that. Um, it's been yeah. a joy. Uh, it's really been really fun. fun. I've really uh, enjoyed this. Thank you. Thank you so much. And I hope to meet you soon because we haven't met yet. Um, I've been to lots of sober events, but I was thinking the other day as well that I think I'm three years sober in January, but half of that has been in, in lockdown as well, which is feels crazy. But then oh, yeah. I'm proud of myself for that as well, because lockdown hasn't been easy on many levels. And, you know, it's another challenge in life. We, we're faced with these and you're eight years sober and, you know, they're going to be challenges in another 10 years for you and for me. So it's, I think this book is really brilliant and I would love to read it, but I haven't got my copy yet. So, um, <laughs> yeah, you know, you know, I'm sorting that out. Yeah. But no, <laughs> it sounds an absolutely brilliant, brilliant book. And I, I'd love to talk to you another time about the disease model of that because that's been talked about a lot lately as well. So we're all learning and educating, aren't we? So, yeah. I think brilliant oh thank you this has been really really fun i've really enjoyed this conversation good thank you so much Catherine. i hope you have a lovely day with your little doggy <laughs> to give my regards to your chihuahua i will do and let's catch up soon all right take care Dave. thanks bye bye, bye. i hope you have enjoyed today's episode thank you so much for listening One for the Road can be found on all the usual podcast platforms and now you can subscribe to my new platform on Patreon where you can watch the live unedited video recordings and you also get two bonus podcasts per month. The link is on my show notes. You can also find me on Instagram at SoberDave and please don't forget to subscribe And if you get a chance, please leave a review. Until then, have a great week and see you next time.